Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of Guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. I'm very excited to welcome Walt Williams to the show this week. Uh, Walt is a, a video game writer and a really brilliant video game writer. You know, he he wrote the the, the seminal Spec Ops, the line. Um, genuinely, I do think it is quite seminal in terms of a, a video game script really uh, elevating the game behind it, you know. Um, if you listen to last week's episode, actually, that might be a, a quite a nice companion piece to this because I spoke to Brandon Kyo, who who's actually written a book all about Spec Ops, the line. Um, Walt is also uh, excitingly writing the upcoming single-player campaign for for Star Wars Battlefront 2, which we get into uh, a little bit. And it was just, it was a real delight to talk. You know, we go off in all kinds of directions that, that I wasn't expecting. It's a, a thoroughly enjoyable chat. Um, also, and, and this sounds like a, like a a real blatant plug, and it genuinely isn't. Like, uh, um, he didn't ask me to do this. I just, I, I thought it would be genuinely of particular interest to listeners to the show. Uh, he's just written a book called Significant Zero, which comes out next month, and it's a, a behind-the-scenes look at AAA video game development, which I think, you know, if you do enjoy the show and the kind of stories people tell, I'm sure that book would be of interest to, uh, to you, so, so do check it out. If you enjoy the show, um, please do rate and review on iTunes. It's the, the best way you can support it. It helps new listeners discover the show and, and grows the audience. As does telling a friend or sharing the show on Twitter. It's all very much appreciated. If you really like the show, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the, the money and the inclination, all donations are, are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Now, I know the, the show has a, an international audience, um, but if, if any people listening to it happen to be uh, visiting the Edinburgh Festival this year, uh, I've got a couple of recommendations I wanted to give. Um, these are all people that have been on the show before uh, and, and whose shows are, are, are brilliant. Uh, so first up, it's Amy Conway. Uh, Amy was on the um, Autosave episode I did about performance, and she was actually talking about this this show, which you, ne- you can now go and, and see. Uh, it's called Super Awesome World. Um, and it's it's about video games and on and mental health and, and how kind of video games can help people cope uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, it's a really brilliant show. I appreciate like a show about video games and depression doesn't exactly sound like a, like a laugh a minute, but I, I can't recommend checking it out enough because it's uh, it is very sort of serious in the issues that it deals with. But the show itself is so much fun and it's really uplifting um, and, and, and interactive. It's it's, a, it's it's a great show. I highly recommend it. Um, also, John Robertson, who's a previous guest on the show, he'll be performing uh, The Dark Room, which is always, uh, always a delight, as well as his own sort of solo stand-up show. He's he's a brilliant comedian, uh, and that episode is is probably one of the ones where I've laughed the most uh, during an episode. And, and also, um, finally, Steve McNeil, uh, who is one of the hosts of Go 8-Bit, which actually started life as a, as a fringe show. Um, he was on the show before. You can hear all about the history of Go Eight Bit at the Fringe and how it made its way onto television. Uh, but he also does a, another live show called Wi-Fi Wars, which is on this year. Um, annoyingly, not annoyingly, 
but I think actually that that show is only on for one night and it's not listed in the Fringe program. So it's probably already sold out. But if you manage to nab a ticket, you know, uh, I would uh, highly recommend it. I'm sure it'll be an excellent evening. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email the show. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Okay, I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. about video games so let's do um yes let's do a formal introduction for the sake of ceremony walt so uh welcome to the show thanks so much for for coming on um and if you don't mind would you introduce yourself yeah uh i'm walt williams uh i've been writing video games for about 12 13 years now uh my most recent one that's getting ready to come out this november is star wars battlefront 2 uh, that I wrote along with Mitch Dyer. And um, you also might know me from other games I've worked on. I wrote Spec Ops The Line. Uh, and I've also worked on the Bioshock franchise, the Civilization franchise, Darkness, Mafia, uh, a list of many, many things. I noticed, uh, actually, I was looking at your um, your Moby Games list, and you've got a credit on Gone Home. Um, was that uh, just spe- like it, it, a friend? Just a special thanks. Uh, okay. Because uh, I... Um, uh, when they were working on it, they asked uh, some people to to, to play test it, oh, okay, uh, okay. and I play and I, and I play tested it for them. That's all that is. Um, which uh, I also had noticed. I looked at my mobile games one time and Gone Home showed up, but they didn't have it listed as special thanks. Which is like Gone Home. I was like, I didn't work on that <laughs> game, but and then I saw, oh, it's a special thanks. Okay, well that was nice. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, what, I guess what what, what was interesting because you, you mentioned Bioshock as well, and that isn't listed. I don't I don't think anyway. I'm sure I would have picked that up. But just in terms of like because you're from a kind of a, a rarefied place in games, or you're a writer of games, which is still kind of relatively rare. Um, do you find is it similar to kind of like like, like Hollywood in that you know like like Joss Whedon wrote a lot of Toy Story, but it's kind of uncredited. But they, they, like, as in, there's a lot of scripts kind of passed around a small community, and people kind of punch up other people's work and stuff. Uh, that absolutely happens. Uh, for what's worth, with Bioshock, that's not the case. I didn't write on Bioshock. I was a I was a lead game analyst, which ah, okay. sounds which sounds like quality assurance, and it's not. It was not QA. Uh, it's basically the. Uh, I worked at 2K when I started off in my career um, back in 2005, and I was hired on as a game analyst. And the more common title, which is used now, would be a production assistant. I'm helping with uh, screenshots, uh, promotional assets. I run demos for press. I'm playing through the game over and over and over, not for bugs necessarily, but to provide uh, usable creative uh, feedback for the developer okay um so like with bioshock i did a lot of screenshots um pro- most screenshots that you've seen of the first bioshock game i probably took them um but there would be things like you know playing through the game a lot and getting a sense of like how the different plasmids work with each other and then just writing up those thoughts and saying them to the developer so that irrational could be able to look and go okay so this is good outside feedback on what on, on what Walt is yeah. doing with the plasmids and how he's working with them so they could like factor that into their design 
Um, so that's that's what I did on the first Bioshock. I was a story editor on Bioshock Two, um, and then Bioshock Infinite. I uh, had nothing to do with it all, which so that was actually very nice for me because it meant I got to play a Bioshock game yeah. for the first time and not know anything, and so that was fantastic. Did you um, did you purposefully seek out kind of two K because of the chance to work on these kind of games? Because Ken Levine is very no. much a kind of figurehead well, of writers of, in games, I suppose. None of that when I started at two K, two K had only been around for about a year, um, and it was not public knowledge yet that they had uh, purchased Irrational and that they were going to be uh, publishing Bioshock. I didn't find that out until after I joined the company. I actually I'd moved up to New York from Louisiana. Uh, with the hope of starting a writing career in comic books. Um, or and I, and I was working some freelance screenwriting stuff. Uh, and um, things weren't coming together. And I met uh, some guys in a bar who had attended the same college I did, Baylor University, uh, Waco, Texas. But they had attended it like 10 years before I had. Um, and they knew some people who worked on a newspaper that I worked on. And so, you know, the... Familiarity bought me a few rounds of drinks with them, and one of the guys uh, happened to be the hiring manager for Take Two, which is the the parent company that owns 2K. And he was just like, "Hey, what are you doing?" I'm like, "I don't do anything right now, man." And he's like, "Well, send me your resume. Like, uh, you know, to this company, 2K is hiring uh, people, and I think there's some entry level positions, and maybe there's something that your skills line up with. So just send it over, and you know, I'll get in touch if there's anything that uh, I think you might be good for." And a couple weeks later, I got a call from him. It's like, hey, we got this game analyst position. Uh, they're interested in talking to you. Would you like to come in and interview for it? And I was like, sure, that's fine. Uh, you know, and I went in. Uh, interview went well, and I was like, okay, well, I mean, I guess I could do this until my writing career takes off. And then it became <laughs> my writing career. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. It was. I, God I bless stumbled me into boss. video games. Oh, it was wonderful. It, honestly, like I would be so. I look. It's funny because I always, you know, I remember when I told my parents, yes, I'm going to move to New York City. I don't have a job. I don't know anybody there. I've got $2,000 in the bank. I'm going to be a writer. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> and I this look always back on, works I'm, out. This always, New York is filled with successful yeah, writers well, who come here and follow their dreams. I know. That's the thing. I look back on it. I'm like, I'm so, God, I was so stupid. That like that, I would never make a decision like that today. And I was, and I was eating lunch with a friend and I said that to him. He's like, yeah, but Walt, it did work out. You did become a writer because you moved to New York. And I was like, oh, that's a fair point. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> I don't really know how to like, digest that now because it, I know it was a terrible idea, but it did work out. But a lot of those terrible ideas always, not always, but you know, it, in terms of you know people who are going to be interviewed about things, then it's definitely worked out. Like things have gone well to get to that stage of not writing. But it was, absolutely, like I remember speaking. Um, this is a terrible cheap plug for the show, but you know I don't care. <laughs> uh, when I spoke to Ken Levine about this when he was on the show, like he had a, a similar sort of path where he he moved to LA to become a screenwriter and kind of got burned by the business and kind of just stumbled on this ad for a game. Was like, I guess I can give that a go. And then yeah. that all happened afterwards, and, and that's you know the same stories repeat again and again, um, and and it's it's amazing. Like I, I love that the world is still able to offer these surprises. I mean, as as someone who is uh, trying to make uh, make it as a, as a writer myself, like in the constant grind of pitching and meetings and projects almost happening and falling apart. Like the idea that you could just bump into someone at a bar and everything changes is. That's magical. I mean, it's kind of dangerous, but it's also amazing. 
It is. It's a. I'm. I'm fully aware of how lucky I am. Like, uh, it's definitely worth saying that that this is not the life that I ever thought I was going to have. Um, and at the same time, it. I, I can't imagine at this point living any other life. It's exactly. I was very, very lucky to stumble into it, and and I still enjoy it so, so much. Well, let's. Uh, today. Um let's let let's track it then what let's let's go back so uh are you from louisiana originally yes yeah uh, okay so growing up in louisiana if you can if you can remember what was your very first experience of a video game the very first experience with a video game outside of playing something in the arcade uh probably would have been the atari 2600 uh the one that i can remember most that probably would have affected me most at that point would have been adventure uh, I have always, for some reason, been attracted to a particular kind of fantasy uh, that falls into the traditional fantasy genre growing up. RPGs, Final Fantasy, Quest for Glory, um, Dungeons & Dragons, those were the type of games that I really, really loved. And even though like the more narrative-heavy narrative aspects of it didn't appear in, the, in that old Atari game adventure, it's still... Uh, everything hinted about a bit it, of things, you know. It did. You had the, you had the, the castle. You had the dragon. You had the mazes. You had the, the hidden uh, walls and the different items you could pick up and use. It just, it was so different from all these other games. And it also had a clear ending to it. Like you got to the castle. You got open the door with the key. You got inside. There was the chalice. You got it. You won. So many of these other games. Seem to go on forever, like Pac-Man or um, yeah, you run in a treadmill uh, sort of thing. Asteroids, exactly. Like they were meant to just simply be entertainment that got harder and harder and harder until you died. And and while that was fun when you're a little kid, you know, it's frustrating to play through a thing that ultimately is going to end in you dying and having to start over. So adventure having, it felt like there was an entire, for lack of a better word, adventure. Uh, completely uh, designed in it from start to yeah. finish that I could go through. And I loved that as a kid. Uh, and that, I'm pretty sure I got that Atari 2600 from my my older brother. I think it got left behind at some point, And that's where I discovered this thing. Just absolutely fell in love with that game. How old are you um, when, when you would have been playing that? Oh, oh, man, I have no idea. I'm 35 now. Uh, pretty young, so, I'm guessing. Yeah, I feel like I was, I feel like I got mine in, my the first Nintendo, my NES, when I was like maybe eight, so it would have been before I turned eight. Maybe it would have been about five or six. I'd have to I'd have to Google when the thing came out and do it, you know, kind of chart chart it with my own life. But probably about five or six seems right. It's a hard thing with childhood memories. Oh, first, it, you can't really They're pinpoint. Yeah, they all just like blur together. But that's okay. Um, I, I do. I, it never really occurred to me to think about why that kind of the the kind of adventure, the castles and wizards and stuff. Why that is so enduring. I'm sure there must be some academic papers written about this about why why that that trope is so uh, is so loved by so many and kind of endless. Because it's such a weird. I agree, thing. and I and i feel like i yeah, should know that i, I feel it, like it should just be like, oh it's because of this but i don't i don't know why why, why wizards and elves and dragons why why is that a thing 
some it, I feel like it's honestly it's just such a ingrained part of different aspects of our pop culture at this yeah. point that you, it's like you're going back to that original version of it and so it resonates with everything else. I mean you take something like Star Wars which also clearly has a, a large uh, influence of you know knights and wizards Absolutely, and magic yeah. and things like that. Uh, so that when you go back to that original source, it has that sense of home to you. Uh, I think it's just the, that would be my best guess is that it's simply permeated through so much of our culture and the things that we consume. It's just comforting. you can't help but not like yeah. it. Yeah. So so that would. But sorry, like, go ahead. following on from uh, from adventure, was that uh, were you kind of in like did you kind of search out more games or were you just kind of playing whatever <laughs> fell in your lap? Oh, uh, well, uh, I'd, I'd say both. Uh, I mean, look, I was an indoor kid, without a doubt. Um, growing up in the South, uh, sports were big. Outs- being outside was big. Fishing, hunting, things that uh, kind of appeal to me now, but didn't really appeal to me back then as a kid. I wanted I wanted digital adventure. I wanted air conditioning. I wanted uh, magical worlds on my TV. Um, I wanted toys, action figures, all that kind of stuff. That's what I really, really loved. I loved playing with the imagination uh and getting into these worlds and these characters so from there i mean it became um i became obsessed with the nintendo uh entertainment system and the first games that were coming out for that uh were super mario brothers and legend of zelda those are the ones that i were most aware of at the time particularly because of the nintendo serial system uh which was this the Nintendo branded cereal that had, that were that was being put out in America. I don't know if you had it over there. This hasn't come up on the show before. No, I've never heard. Oh, of this. it is. Uh, I mean, it was it was terrible. Um, it was like all those. They had, back then they had Gremlins, Ninja Turtles, Ghostbusters, anything that a kid liked. They, this company named Ralston would uh, make a branded cereal out of it. But what Nintendo, the Nintendo cereal system was so different from them in that it had two different uh, types of cereal in it. There was Fruity, and I believe Fruity was Mario, and then there was Barry, and Barry was Zelda. Now, I don't know what the difference between Fruity and Barry <laughs> is supposed to be in this okay. context, but um, on the front of the box, it was there was a design that was like a, t- a television screen, uh, and on the left side of the TV was Mario, on the right side was Zelda, and then when you open the box, there were two separate bags, uh, and so and the one of them had mario vaguely mario type shapes and one of them had vaguely zelda type shapes and uh and so seeing that and i just desperately wanted a nintendo so badly and so i ate this cereal all the time uh (laughs) and even as i took the first box of it that we had once the cereal was done i took it to my room i made a little cardboard nintendo controller out of cardboard and crayons and connected to the box with a string just pretended to play on this little drawn out tv screen that was on the front of the box because that's <laughs> the closest i had to this you can thing. hear and the then, violins in the background oh no it was, it was terribly <laughs> sad it was such a horrible childhood i had but that christmas i got one i got the nintendo actual nintendo and it was wonderful i and mean how could a parent on, not was... get the, the the child of nintendo after seeing that scene of them playing, oh, playing on empty box with the drawn on <laughs> well you know but that's the thing though is like i said like i liked playing with my imagination no, of course, i had yeah. I had no idea what these games were like, but in my head I was coming up with all of these uh, things that, frankly, the, the real games never lived up to. Oh, of course. Um, but that was it was still fun for me in, in, in 
in its own weird way. Uh, and, you know, you, you finally get them and you discover that, wow, video, especially early video games, they're very hard and they're very punishing. And they, and they want little kids to cry on Christmas because they can't get past the first level and just continue to die and die and die. And, uh, well, so my quest for video for. games from that point was just discover, trying to find games that would not punish me for playing them. Um, and, of course, then I went on to Red Spec Ops Line, a game which notoriously punishes you for playing it. Um, <laughs> Wonder how that came about. Wonder where the inspiration for that was from. Who knows? Um, so yeah, uh, that's so kinda... did you just was it? I guess like was it? Um, were games available to you? Like, were you? Did you have like a friendship group that you could swap games with? Or did you yeah. have a local store it was and all a, that? I had a friend named Jono, uh, and so he had all the systems, so he would let me borrow games. And then we had a rental place uh, near my mother's work, and so I could rent games from there. Uh, at some point in time, I got a Nintendo Power subscription. I don't know when. I don't think it was early on, but because um, I do remember just going to the, the rental store and looking at games on the shelf and being like, mm, you, you, you seem like you'll be good. Yeah, I will rent you. And, taking, and having no idea what the thing was and taking it home and just being like, oh, God, why? You're so, so hard. <laughs> um, like, I think Marble Madness was the first game I ever rented. Because I like marbles. Marbles were cool. They were weird little glass balls that had cool designs in them. And my dad used to, oh, would tell me about how he played marbles as a kid and stuff. It's like, oh, cool, marbles. This is a thing that everyone can relate to. And then getting it home and being like, oh, what is this? This weird <laughs> 3D balancing act i don't think i ever got past level two it's a um, shame because it's such an amazing game uh, but it's so punishingly difficult it is well you know um i uh i met mark cerny years years later i think probably the end of the year that bioshock came out uh, i met him at dice and was having a drink with him and some friends and mark cerny when he was i think 16 or 17 uh made marble madness coded it and so when i was suddenly face to face with the, this man who tormented my childhood, uh, you know, eight-year-old Walt uh, got to, you know, tell him to go screw himself. Uh, and it was very, very gratifying. And he was very, very nice about it. Um, and uh, so I did that young when he made it. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was, yeah, he was very young. Uh, I, my, I believe it was, I, I could be wrong on the exact age, but I think it was like 16, 17, 18, like that. Add him to my yeah. list. Um, oh, yeah, Mark Cerny's a brilliant guy. You should absolutely talk to him. He's doing great work over at Sony. So, 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 did you, uh, the games, I guess, did, did you feel like it formed kind of uh, like a primary part of how you saw yourself, or was it just kind of another one of those things lumped in with like comic books and movies and stuff? No, it did, because I think games allowed me, you had the games where you played as a character, like Super Mario. You were always going to be Mario, or you were going to be Green Mario. Um, who apparently was named Luigi, but I don't think I knew that at the time. He was just <laughs> Green Mario. Um, but then you'd have a game like uh, The Legend of Zelda, which, I mean, technically you play as a character named Link, but it allowed you to put your name in yeah. when you started a new file. And the fact that my name, Walt, four letters, boom, perfectly fit in most uh, name limitations on the NES allowed me a little bit more freedom of feeling like I was projecting myself onto these characters because i actually could just put my name in there and oh that's not link that's walt uh and so there was an aspect of that that i think allowed me growing up to 
express myself a bit more through these adventures yeah. uh, of not feeling like I was playing a game, but that I was playing myself in these games, which is why I really, I think, turned a lot towards RPGs like Final Fantasy uh, or Quest for Glory or things where you could, you in not only your own name, but the names of your party members. So you're put, my friends are in there with me as well, and we're going on these epic adventures that you know, are so similar to the books that I'm watching and TV shows and things that I'm watching. Suddenly they're interactive in a way that entertainment has not been prior to that outside of us just playing pretend. Yeah. Um, and so that was, I think, something that really hit me young was that the ability, a, a level of escapism from just who I was growing up as a kid. And a lot of them um, are like a kind of... I think Zelda especially, less so probably Final Fantasy, but there, there's also an element of them, I think, that's kind of gives you a palette to tell your own stories, you know, in, in the same way that, you know, action figures do that as well. Like, as a kid, like, my Lego pirate ship was essentially a soundstage for a whole series of movies that I would make myself in my brain on a Saturday afternoon, you know. It just gives you that chance to have tangible things to kind of play with and make your own stories, you know. Oh no! Absolutely. I mean, it 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 did expand into uh, the way that I played pretend in the real world, um, and especially like you know a lot of you know games have a tendency to be isolated affairs, and I don't mean necessarily that playing them is uh, isolating, but that the worlds themselves tend to be uh, feel a little isolated because you have constraints uh, yeah. in designing and what you can put in them so there, there has there is a tendency to feel lonely inside of a game uh and that kind of also transferred over to to the way i would when i was alone moving through the real world uh places where you know i would i would go to school and have to wait after school for my mother to pick me up and so you know i would just be kind of left to roam the halls of these buildings for you know 15 minutes 30 minutes an hour sometimes uh, going into rooms, uh, classrooms, looking at items, going, you know, like you, like you do in a video game, you're walking into a house, you're just rooting through people's treasure chests, finding things. And so like being left alone in a place in, in, in the real world began to, to have that sense of exploration that I had exploring worlds alone in video games. And that was, that certainly like began to expand you know, because you're writing your own stories in your head while you're doing these things. And that, course, be I think, yeah. began to set me down that, that path of ultimately wanting to become a writer. Because as you would write them in your head, eventually you'd move on to wanting to putting them down on paper uh, and then getting better at them and then writing more and more and more. Because that's the thing. If, you, if, you're, if you're a writer, it's, it's ultimately something that I think you're just drawn to inevitably. And so even, if, even when it's bad, you just keep doing it oh, you're course. going to keep doing it and uh and once it was a thing that once i got started it just kept going um and i and I, you know i've been writing since i was a little kid a little short stories i would draw my own little comic books um all that kind of stuff and yeah i think games were you know i also i read voraciously as a kid i read all the time and so if i wasn't playing a game i was usually reading a book or creating stories with my action figures epic epic stories that would cross over with other stories and and i would every every new game i played would in my head i would create these stories that somehow connected the last one to the new one and how it was all one ongoing story <laughs> and you know it's 
I think, you know, story, it's just how I'm built. It's how my brain works is that I want to create narratives out of things and connect them. Even when I'm not working on something or if I am working on a story now, it's like at least once one day a week, I'll take a break and just outline a new story. I'll probably never do anything with it, but it's just, uh, you know, the, the act of creating a story in my head and seeing it fully fleshed out in perfection in my mind is refreshing and rewarding and a nice little break from a story that I'm writing for a game or for a book or for yeah. a script. Uh, and something that, you know, the rest of the world will never see it, but it was, you know, it's some, it's a story that I got to tell just for myself and that was fun. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you just need to do which, that. You know? I should point out because we haven't pointed it out yet. I do have a book coming out. Oh, you do a, have that a book. covers a, I do covers a lot of the things we're talking about. It's called Significant Zero, Heroes, Villains, and the Fight for Art and Soul in Video Games. But Significant Zero is the main title. Um, and it's about, a lot. as I said, a lot of what we're talking about, how I grew up uh, with games and, and, and came to find myself in the industry. And uh, then from there, just ultimately like what it's like working in AAA development, the demands uh, both on you physically, emotionally, mentally, creatively, uh, and how you know, ultimately, like the human side of development, which I think is something that gets lost a lot. That's why uh, I started doing so this show. It's one of the yeah. reasons why I started doing exactly. this Exactly. Like, we focus so much on the player that we lose a lot of the, the human stories of the creators and the artists and Absolutely. the people working behind the scenes. It's really the, it's the only medium that I feel really f tries to make the artist invisible. Uh, and it's very interesting to me. Um, and so I wanted to I think it leads to a lot of misconception about what it really takes to make a game and what it really takes, the toll that it takes on people who make games. And so I wanted to write a book that really spoke to that and, and showed people what it's like on the inside. Um, well, so yeah, I mean, definitely it's called, check it's called that, Significant yeah. Zero. Yeah, it comes out September 19th, um, and it's already up for pre-order on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all those places. Um, but a lot of I just wanted to bring it up because we I mentioned books and we're talking about a lot of things that come into play with the book. And I'm sure uh, if anyone yeah. anyone listening to this show is interested in that because that is ultimately what the show is all about. It's it's the, the human side of, of video games, how we build our relationships and our our identities in some senses through specific games that we play. Absolutely. Um, speaking of which, like considering now you know what you've ultimately gone on to do, and you know as a kid who's you know a voracious storyteller is. Did it ever occur to you, like when you're younger, that if I'm gonna, uh, you may have had the thought, I'm sure, like I'll, I'll grow up, I'll be a writer, I'll write stories. But did it ever occur to you that you would do that within the the realm of video games? Not at all, not no. at all. Because I didn't. I growing up, there I wasn't mean, a huge amount of writing had, in games. Like there, well, there's there was that, but also just I, I don't I didn't know. I don't think I knew where Atari came from, but I knew that Nintendo came from Japan, and Japan was a long way away from Louisiana. Um, and so that, like, it didn't even register as an option. I just kind of, as a child, always assumed, well, video games should just made in Japan. Um, there, clearly there were American developers doing PC games and things like that, but I didn't have access to, to a PC or any of those games when I was younger. So it was, you know, you, you heard the stories of like, oh, well, you know, I have an uncle who works at Nintendo and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, those lies that kids tell each other to sound <laughs> cool, but it just, it never registered with me that video games at least at a young age that video games were an option over a career path um do you know did, did, did that change 
through circumstance, like that you met these guys in this bar and got this chance, or, or had you considered that before that kind of opportunity arose? No, it, it never really occurred to me um, to to do it. I mean, ultimately, at that point, I was looking at books and comics and, and yeah. film, TV. Uh, I didn't know what went into writing a video game. I always kind of assumed that it was just written by the same people who programmed them, um, which... To be fair, in a lot of cases at that, uh, oh, at that time, it, totally it was. Is, yeah, I think I think like yeah. this whole like realm of the the video game writer is still like super new, and it's being kind of redefined all the time. I mean, and you you had a significant part to play in that with with the spec ups. That was you know that's very much I think a, a kind of poster child for what uh, what what really good writing can can do to a a game. Well, thank um, you. I appreciate that. No, uh, I mean that. I mean, there's nothing nothing that was done in spec ops could have been done without the, the great work done by Jaeger, uh, the developer for sure. Cause I mean, ultimately, and that's the thing, like you're saying, like game writing is, it's, it's more prevalent now, but it's something that's still becoming accepted throughout the industry as something that needs a, a dedicated person to do. And, but what that dedicated writer needs is one, the ability to work with their designers, uh, and their, and the developers, but also, they have to have a, an understanding of how design works and how the game works yeah. and how the player is going to work. It, it, there's writing for a video game when done properly is very, very close to almost being like a creative director because you do have to step yeah. back and look at the the whole picture of not even just a game, but say for instance just an area of the game you need to be looking at what is the art saying what is the, the yeah. sound saying what is the what is the gameplay scenario saying or am i stealthing through it am i fighting through it are there no enemies are there uh, non-combatants all these different things what are these what do these elements come together and you can you can really approach game writing from two different directions uh, which is one uh using the story to define uh space and what's happening uh and for, to do that, you really do have to be the creative director, because <laughs> uh, you're now going to different departments and saying, "This is what I need this yeah. particular section to do." I mean, not or to not the, to plug plug the show again, but that is when I was asking Ken Levine about this, just because it's it's very specific. I was like, "How do you how do you become like known as this writer who like writes video games?" Like, well, you start your own company and put yourself in charge. <laughs> That's absolutely. the only way you do it. Yes, and the, the thing, it's funny that working on the first Bioshock uh, and, and being around Ken and the team at Irrational and I, you know, with myself wondering, how do I get to a point as where I'm writing video games and people are listening to me, you know, I'm working on Bioshock, I'm going, oh, you start your own company yeah. and you put yourself <laughs> in charge. Uh, and it's, it's nice to know that I can also <laughs> realize that same thing. Um, but th the other way is uh, a slightly more passive way. The... Uh, but that is, I think, is equally uh, rewarding for a writer if you're into that kind of thing, is looking what all these different pieces say when you put them together and then writing that. Because every, every, every game has its own natural story. And that story, if you were to strip out any dialogue uh, or any narrative context whatsoever and just look at what the artists and the designers and everyone have done and taped together... What does that say? And that that gut instinct of what's happening—that's the natural story—and you grab onto that and you flesh that out and you feed into that. The story 
needs to mirror and project that and and find what the themes of that are. You know, like with Spec Ops, it was a military shooter and one that had was a bit more on the arcade gameplay side than like the realistic gameplay side. Um, you know, because you're you know you're three guys fighting hundreds of soldiers and waves and waves and waves. Um, and so what? Ultimately, you have to find a story that works with that game that's being made to tell the the themes or the narrative or whatever that you're wanting to tell as a writer. Um, and that's what we that we were with Spec Ops. We were very lucky that the design and the story were able to work hand in hand to go back and forth and create the experience that people had. Uh, you know where where game narrative tends to fall apart is when the story and the gameplay are fighting each other, and that's a lot of games because you have we have this idea that oh well the player wants to be a hero uh the player they're the main character so they by default they are the hero and heroes do good things and blah, blah 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 well but yeah but in the gameplay you can just gun down anyone that you walk across well you know players are going to get angry if they don't have the agency to just shoot but that's that's not the story that's gameplay it's different so now you've got a story and a game that are fighting each other and they're not feeding into each other that story can still be incredibly well written and that game can still be very very fun to play but ultimately it's not going to gel in such a way that it's elevated to yeah. a completely immersive experience because it's always going to be two disconnected halves um and you want to work those two together you you have as a writer you absolutely have to work with your designers and your team and and find the things that they're trying to do and work that into your story but at the same time you need a team that's going to be willing to make some compromises on their end too. Absolutely. Like when like you come that. together and say, Hey, what you guys made is kind of saying this. So if we just tweak this one little thing, it's going to blow up. It's going to be awesome. And you need a team to go, okay, yeah, we see what you're saying. You're right. We'll tweak that one little thing. Oh, wow. You're right. That's actually a really cool sequence now. Uh, and everything works together. It's, it's easy to imagine though, that same team being like, do you know how much time we've spent on this and how much and they, this guy's just walking in here and saying oh you need to add this in this for the story like who cares about that? you know i can totally yeah. you can see how these antagonistic relationships can form um, oh yeah writer oh yeah people hate writers of course uh, of course <laughs> their job is so easy reason. they do nothing they just sit around and think all day oh if only <laughs> this is the this is the thing that no one tells you about being a professional writer and you don't really figure it out until you're too far down the path uh, to turn around and do something else it on. is it is work it is actual work in the sense that you're like oh it's gonna be great i'll wake up at noon i'll never have to put on a suit it's gonna be fine life's gonna be great no no you're gonna be working all the time yep and you're going to you're not gonna have a suit and then you're gonna need one you'd be like where do i get a suit i've never even bought a suit what am i doing you're completely unprepared for real life when you're a professional <laughs> writer uh and but you are you have to be your own boss and you have to set your own hours and you just have to make yourself do it because the only here's i mean the honest truth about being a writer is this the only thing i love more than writing is not writing that's and those two those two things are constantly at war with each other i always want to be writing and i always want to never ever have to write again that's because it's pain it is pure Pure unadulterated pain. Having just written punching is yourself very good then. every day. Yes, having, having written, written is great. the best for about an hour for, usually. Yes, and then it's gone, and then you're like, oh, actually, this is probably bad. Oh yeah, no, gosh, I, need, I should start bad. working on something else. 
oh, I don't want to work on anything else. Why can't this just <laughs> – oh, no, no, no. And the, you get the small little moments of ac- – <laughs> I honestly, I've, this like, isn't going to elicit past... sympathy from anybody. I'm afraid. Oh, I know, <laughs> absolutely not. And and I and I get that. Nor do I want the sympathy for, no, for no, what no. it's worth. I, it's just this is I over the past couple of years, I've really started to examine the emotional arc that I go through when writing because it helps to know. It's like okay, I finished this project, and now I'm going to be depressed for two weeks. Yeah, that's just what's going to happen next. And I know that. So when people are like, "Are you okay?" I could be like, "No, no, it's cool." We've only got like five more days of this. Like we're gonna be. A, it, this is just part of my creative process. Yeah, that like, everything will be fine. This week. week is fine. This week I'm gonna be completely crazy and anxiety ridden, and everything is terrible. But once I'm through that, it'll be fine. This is exactly. just is part of the cycle of it. Yeah. Um, and this is like I, I've got a lot of uh, I've, I've grown a kind of a, a group of writer friends. They and I think the main reason we all uh, want to hang out so much is just purely because of this, because of the ability to speak to other people and, and vent and not feel like the the kind of the, the whiniest baby in the room you know? <laughs> absolutely <laughs> um well we we've kind of skipped ahead a bit so let's let's go back a little bit so oh yeah you're growing up with 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 games um did was there ever a period i guess when you you moved away from games for whatever reason like oh, i'm too cool for this now i'm growing up or or were they mm. always a constant so I never thought that I was too cool for games up to uh, a certain point, and I'll get back to that. But I did move away after college when I moved to New York because I thought, well, now I have to grow up and get a job now. So I'll leave my system, I'll get rid of my video game systems and uh, try and get a job. Uh, and it's fun when I interviewed for the job at 2K, you know, they asked, like, you know, what systems do you own? I was like, I don't own any. <laughs> and they were like, you, you do realize you're applying for a job at a video game company right <laughs> i was like well no i i yes i'm totally aware of that i just kind of thought that's what you did now as a grown-up is you <laughs> stopped playing games and you got a job and they were like oh that's so cute would you be willing to start playing games again absolutely yes please i would love a professional reason to do that every single day um <laughs> but that i mean i played all through college uh growing uh, in high school and middle school just all up to uh, I, anytime a new Final Fantasy game or a Jack and Daxter game came out. And I'll just tell you this right now. I was a terrible student in college. If you're headed towards college right now, please don't follow my examples. Uh, but I would just stop going to class for however many days it would take me to beat the game. Um, and that, for the most part, What did part, you study in, of, in college? Uh, so, okay. Uh, I originally was going to be a preacher. Oh wow! And that last that lasted about three days, and then I decided I was going to be a journalist, and that lasted about six months. And then I realized uh, this is not the type of writing I enjoy at all. Um, and it and that came down to two things: one, the the structure uh, was very different from what I was used to consuming uh, and writing, and the the interviewing process with people was I'm not great at asking questions. I'm great at observing. Uh, but like sitting down one-on-one and asking you questions and thinking about the things that I'm going to need to know six hours from now, when I sit down and write this, those don't pop into my head until I'm writing it six yeah. hours from now, because writing is how I organize my thoughts. So the interview process up for I was terrible at that. I could I would never think of what I actually needed to know, and I would so I would never ask it. So I move. I was like after that I um, so I was also 
I was on an Air Force scholarship. I was going to be in the Air Force, an Air Force officer. And so at that point, I was like, well, God didn't work. Uh, telling the truth didn't work. Um, so let's, let's do film. I really like movies. And the school didn't have a dedicated film program, but they had something called telecommunications uh, that was like a broader film uh, yeah. media kind of studies thing. So I went into that. And eventually that led to me learning uh, screenplay format. And on the side, extracurricular-wise, I wrote for uh, this paper that the school had called The Rope. And it was a satirical newspaper that had been around where when base, I was there. About where base eight, is the university? Uh, Texas. Middle of Texas, Waco, Texas. Uh, it is the large Baylor was the lar- was and is the largest Southern Baptist University, I believe, in the world. So extremely conservative, uh, extremely religious. Uh, and I fell into a group of friends that basically showed up at Baylor, looked around, said, "I need to transfer to a different school immediately," but was too <laughs> lazy to actually do it. And so we all just ended up staying there because <laughs> transferring would have been too much work. Uh, and so this was this kind of group of friends that, uh, and a lot of us ended up were writing for this paper that had been around at the school for about 80 years and was written by people anonymously. You, uh, your, your identity was hidden. No one knew who wrote the paper. And Just so that vision of 4chan. Yeah. Well, it kind of, I mean, it not as bad, not, <laughs> not as like toxically terrible. Can you imagine uh, I mean, a printed newspaper version of 4chan? <sighs> Oh my God. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that, you know, it was, the paper was above reproach. It certainly was not, <laughs> you know, you're, when you're in college and you're, you're particular, you're, you're trying to be, uh, provocative, you know, inevitably you are going to write some jokes that when you look back on them as an older person, oh, you're like, course. I, that's not something I'm terribly proud of. But for the most part, I, you know, we were addressing issues of the campus that were we felt were important to address um and and it was a lot of fun and, and interestingly enough it really tapped into the thing that i had kind of loved growing up playing video games in particular the rpgs the the thief aspect I, I was always drawn to the thief class the stealth the manipulating things from the shadows and it's like wait secret society writing stories no one knows it's me okay that's kind of Hitting a lot of my uh, a lot of my childhood buttons here. I kind of dig in this, and so that's how I kind of got drawn into that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, I basically spent most of my college playing video games and um, writing for that newspaper, and not attending class, being a generally uh, mediocre student, unless it was uh, related to cinematography or writing. Those were the two things that just I. I was always a part of because I loved those things. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to be better at them. And I would show up to those classes every time, and I would put all of my work into them. But if you yeah. put me I mean, in a that's geology kind of what class, university yeah. is for, isn't it? You go to yeah, you, you find your interests and, and zero in on them. I, I yeah, have to ask about the the preacher though. Well, like I I, <laughs> I have to ask about this. I can't leave that thread hanging. Well, I mean, look, I grew up in the Bible Belt. It's just kind of part. It, it's part of life. Religion is, it's, it's more, in some ways it's more social than actual like doctrine. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I grew for, up in a very yeah. kind of, my, my, my mum has a medal from the Pope. She's that much, she's that good of a Catholic. Um, 
and, so and yeah, like it. absolutely like that is a thing that i would talk about with my friends like oh do you, do you reckon we'll be a priest like when i'm like 11 or something when we're all altar boys and, yeah. and our, our priest in particular had he had an amazing pc and he had a modem which was like before people had modems and it was just amazing there's like, oh that seems like a great life he could just say mass and then go and play video games this is great yeah um but I, i'm assuming that you kind of out of that i mean i don't know if you still have faith in any any way um i don't talk about my 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 personal faith too much now at this point in life um i, yeah, I, don't mean to I will say i will say i'm i will say i'm not a church going i will say that okay, okay uh i moved i moved away from i became very uncomfortable with church uh and particularly southern church uh around the 2000s uh i felt that things were becoming very politicized here in the United States between churches yeah, and like the, you know, the right conservative leaning political parties were very much attaching themselves to the concept of religion. Yeah. And, I, and I think whatever your belief politically doesn't matter, whatever your belief spiritually is, you can have both, but it be, it was becoming such a thing that was, there should be a separation if, of exactly. church and state. If, like that's that's the point. Yeah, I was like, if you are a Christian, you are a Republican. Uh, it doesn't no no. That's not a thing. Like uh, guys, it's almost like an oxymoron. Yeah. In fact, in the yeah, current political it, it, climate, it really is. Um, <laughs> not to again, not to say like if that's your cup of tea, yeah, hey, yeah, that's no, that's for you, man. But uh, like, it was that kind of mixed with going off to college and being immediately confronted with all of this freedom and by freedom i mean um dating uh and and uh intoxicants and yeah, i mean um, that's the worst time exactly. to go that that's i mean they're throwing you in at the deep end like we're going to really test exactly. you right away exactly but i guess so, the people who you stick know, it out it was meant to be i think so i mean there's i i do remember very specifically thinking i don't like feeling guilty about the things that i just want to do and I can, I can't stop myself from wanting to do those things, but I can stop myself from being guilty. So I'm just going to not, I'm just going to walk away from the things that tell me I should feel bad about this. And I'm just going to live my life without regrets. And that was that. Was that ever an issue with, uh, with video games? Like, cause I, I've mentioned this on the show before, like, uh, a lot of people, um, will mention MMOs that they've played and how much fun they have with MMOs. And I, I've never played an mmo beyond like destiny i suppose um because i know i i have that kind of that kind of brain that i would just fall into that and i would love it and i'm sure i would love it but i would also i know how much guilt i would feel afterwards and that would ruin any good stuff from it so did you ever have that kind of relationship with games i play uh i played world of warcraft pretty hardcore for about maybe about six years uh and the interesting thing is much like other games i didn't i wouldn't I didn't raid. I didn't really play with other people, with the exception of a significant other during that time period. And I and I didn't do dungeons. I played it pretty much like it was a single player game. Just there were other people in the world as well. Um, and I played it a lot. And I don't know that I ever really felt guilty, um, but I did eventually. For in a lot of ways, it was a way to when I was in a long-distance relationship to feel connected with the person that I was dating, that we could play this thing together and have that interaction. Oh, that's um, nice. That's a way of kind yeah. of keeping stuff going. Did, 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 it, did it work out? 
Uh, no, no, it, it didn't work out. Uh, okay. But uh, well, that's not necessarily World when... of Warcraft's fault. No, 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 it's not World of Warcraft's fault. Uh, but the thing is, when the long distance part ended, the the need to play the game kind of suddenly went away as well. Um, okay. And so, it all at, around that same point in time, I wasn't on the road as much with work. I was suddenly working from home a lot more instead of living out of hotel rooms in on the other side of the world working on site with developers and so and i and i uh, realizing that that so much of warcraft had simply been a way to feel connected to any part of my life back home yeah and so once my life was allowed to be at home again that was i think the real thing that made it to where i really didn't need to play warcraft anymore and so i just kind of let it go and i'm not gonna lie like Every six months, at least once a year or so, I'm like, uh, I kind of want to play again. But I don't, the guilt now comes in. And this is where, these days, I don't play many games. And, which is why I don't think I'll ever go back to an MMO, uh, is that I don't, now when I play any video game, I feel guilty. If that game is going to be more than about six hours long. Because it's like I have so many. I have a child. I I have a family. Uh, I live in my hometown, so I'm actually near my parents. Like I have a full family again. Um, I have work obligations. I have a home. I have yard. I have to mow the yard. I have yeah. to water it. I have to take care of the. I mean, they're all little beds. games in and of themselves. Yeah, they are. <laughs> it's real life. Uh, and, the and Sims. So, and but that and that's an interesting point that you bring up because I like a game like Minecraft has zero appeal to me because it's like I don't want to. Why would I want to go build that thing in that game when I need to build this bookshelf that's been sitting in a closet for a month? That's what I need to be building the real thing that needs my attention in the real world. You know, I don't I don't want to learn a recipe in a video game. I need to go cook dinner right now for my family. Like <laughs> the. That the, is the what worst appealed point. to me. I do remember playing oh, it is. in university, playing uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, and going to the gym and just sitting, tapping the X button to work out. My, and I remember at the moment thinking, "Oh my god, this is this is a low point here." But you know, I, I, yeah. I enjoyed the game. It just it was very much like, "Oh, don't don't show me this game. I don't. Nobody needs to see this." <laughs> well, I, I I think that something about games that is and a that's really appealing that we don't fully think about is that we like to see them as power fantasies and to an extent yes they are you are this powerful character you're defeating enemies you're doing things but really the power the real unspoken power fantasy is that you are competent you are responsible and you are adult you are doing things as a kid that adults are doing in the real world whether it is saving the world uh, saving a town, uh, stopping dangerous things, or cooking meals, building a house, taking care of a family—they are—they are adult power fantasies. And when you have those, fa- when you when when that becomes your real day-to-day life, you don't need those particular fantasies anymore. So, like now, the games that I'm drawn to tend to be—and this is just be you know part of because of the type of person that I am. Like I want things that are very narrative driven, but that are, that show me something new that allow me to experience something outside of mm, the life and the narratives that I'm experiencing 
day to day. And in particular, I really like smaller indie games that are one because they're short and I can complete them in a reasonable amount of time yeah. and not feel like I have neglected my life, but also because I, you can see the creators in them so much clearly. You can see, you can see their voice, you can see their signature, you can see them. And I feel like I am stepping away from myself and becoming a part of them absolutely. And I mean, for a that, little bit. And that is the exact reason actually that the majority of the, the guests I've had on the show have been smaller indie developers precisely because you can, you can see the, the hand of the author in, in the final work. So talking yeah. about their life and the games that, that, that inspired them in certain ways, that's hopefully an, an ability to kind of trace this path and see the, the things they love reflected in the things they've made, which is inevitable, you know, with everyone. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I'm very conscious that we haven't talked about games enough, as as, as incredible as a chat as I'm having. <laughs> um, so let's just say we'll pick a sort of time period, sort of from you know the the day that you kind of quit games, uh, you know, ten years before that or whatever. Like, I guess just what what sort of games stick out in your head when you were a kid as being particularly impactful for for whatever reason. Well, look, Final Fantasy VI is the greatest game ever made. I'll just throw that out there. Final, uh, Final Fantasy XII is actually the best, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I think there's there's a valid argument. I will not uh, disagree with that. So long as you didn't say Final Fantasy VII, you and I are going to be cool. No, 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 twelve. Uh, this is a running joke, but it, and it also it is truth. But c- no, sorry, 12, continue. Look, twelve is twelve is quite good. Here's the thing about twelve, though. When you really get down to it, twelve is Star Wars. It is. No, it absolutely is. It, yeah. that is. That is one of and, the appeals. It's, it's Star Wars clearly, with the Gambit yeah. system. It's amazing. There's. N- I, I, I'll never say no world, word about Star Wars. Clearly, I'm a big fan <laughs> uh, and have been blessed to, to work in that galaxy. But um, six, uh, 6 was like the game that just really hit me when I was a kid. That, uh, that you could do so much more, more narratively with a video game. Because it was, it was a true... And as far as I could tell i'm sure i'm probably wrong but to my knowledge it was the first on real ensemble game where you weren't a character with a group of characters around you you were a group of characters and the story was constantly jumping back and forth between them and you were it it felt it felt like an actual fantasy novel where the you were getting a much fuller narrative experience and and also i mean it just had the audacity to do amazing things like destroy the world halfway through wow okay cool that's great um or you're facing a villain that's really just you know a complete nihilist and that's ultimately their motivation is i should be in power because i think i should and um it's kind of just fun to mess with you all because i can like who knew that that would be so relevant to modern day life um (laughs) But, you know, there was a lot to that that really resonated with me. Uh, and there, and the thing about it that resonated with me the most in regards to, like, making games is that there were secrets in the game that the, the game never outright told you uh, were true. Um, you know, there was this character, Shadow, who was a ninja and never took off his outfit. And then there was this little girl named Realm who lived with her grandfather and didn't... Her parents were dead or whatever. And there was a, she had an item that was a ring that she could equip. It was her mother's ring. And no one, no one other character in the game can equip it except 
for Shadow, and it's never explained why. And every now and then, if you would go to Realm's Town with Shadow and your party, you if you if you slept there in the inn, every now and then it would randomly trigger a dream of some person that you've never seen before in the game uh, coming to town, being injured, being taken care of uh, by this woman. Uh, eventually leaving the town, leaving her behind, and it's just left up to you to put together the fact that Shadow is Realm's father. The game never confirms it one way or the other, and that was amazing to me. Uh, that I loved that it was something that I discovered on my own, that the game, it wasn't in the critical path, and, and, and that there was no way for the, to make the game say, no, no, you're right, this is actually a thing that happened. It was entirely for me to discover, and I loved that. Uh, and it's something that I always try to do when I'm working on a game now is put those things in that are kind of narratively important, but are up to the player to discover. And if yeah. they don't, that's perfectly fine because it's, you know, it's going to be amazing to the people who do find it. And they'll talk about it to other people, especially now with the internet being so big and everyone talking about stuff uh, on YouTube and all these stuff, uh, these things, eventually it'll get out clearly. So it's not like the work's going to be wasted, but for those first few people who find these things and gta is amazing at this too just littering their world with these strange little secrets that you can find that the game is never going to like call out for you i love that about game that's that's where game worlds are so interesting yeah is these small little narrative moments that exist outside of the story there's always Um, the trick with that though like uh, i've mentioned this to to other video game uh, writers that i've spoken to um i think sean vanneman in particular because of working on the walking dead like part of me would feel a little bit slighted that if, if you put in all these choices and all these little like secret hidden details and you know what what if nobody sees them you know that that, that, that would be that that's the writer the egomaniac in me being but i'm doing all my best stuff over here in the shadows there's i guess yeah, a couple of people might see it but uh, oh that's what i love though like i mean i <laughs> you already do, assume you, that... you you are that you are uh, the thief class after all well so well, but I also I assume that no one's ever going to read or play anything I write. So <laughs> I, I have as you know my my own the the writer narcissism that I have is is cut very well with uh, my general uh, self loathing. Uh, so it's it's a nice balance. So I when I already assumed well you know probably no one's going to play this anyway. You don't feel too bad about um, well I mean who was going to not see it. Since exactly. no one's playing it, no one's going to not find it. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, and, um, but there, like, those are the, like, with Spec Ops, like, you want, when you're writing a game, you want, if you're doing it right, in my opinion, if I'm doing it right, I don't want to say if anyone else is doing it right, but if I'm doing it right, if there are multiple choices in the game, when you get to the end of the game, you have no desire to play it again and see what the other choices are. Because you feel as if you got the only story that you could have gotten. And uh, that's, for me as a writer, that's pulling it off. Like, if you get to the, like with Spec Ops, clearly there are a lot of choices and there are a lot of endings. If you got to the ending and whatever ending you got, you put down the controller and said, yeah, that felt appropriate and you never played it again, then I did, I feel like I did my job as the writer because it made you feel like, Every path you took was the authentic only path you could have taken. That's good. Um, I mean, to be to, to give 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 credit to Spec Ops again, like it does that very well because there is no, um, it's not like sort of a, a Mass Effect or Infamous or something. There is there there is no kind of moral value 
associated with any choice. It's not like, okay, you, you took the good path there or the bad path. It's just you've taken yeah, that yeah. path. That's, that's where we're going now. Well, that's the thing that for me with moral choices in games I never liked and I, uh, is that they it's, – it's a system that's counting up your good choices and your bad choices and, ult- and at the end judging you based off of that. And, yeah. it, and, it, and it leaves – and I don't know, maybe this comes uh, – the deli- dislike of that comes from my religious past. But really for me, the thing that always bugs me is that it doesn't leave room – for change it doesn't leave room for growth people can start out bad and things can happen to them that causes them to develop empathy uh, and develop a conscience and can grow and can strive to move away from the person that they once were and when you create a moral choice system in a video game that calculates up those choices, you're taking that away from a player. You're, you're robbing them. You may be giving them agency within the game, but you're robbing from them any agency over their own morality because you're simply putting choices in front of them and say, oh, well, you made the bad one at the beginning, so you're, you're bad now. That's just how it is. And that's not the way the world works. <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways, the, the most important choice you ever make is the next choice you're going to make. Absolutely. And that's what, with Spec Ops, I really wanted to get across, is that it's always the next, you always can change. There's always you that can always, chance that, you know, there's always exactly. another another path to take. Yeah, like you don't have to be stuck in this one path. And, you know, and, and, I, and I said this a lot in interviews at the time, one of those choices you can just stop playing. Like if you feel like, you're being forced down a path where everything you do is bad and this is not who you want to be, you can just stop. Because that was the choice that was given to the characters is they don't have to keep going. They weren't there. In fact, they're not even supposed to keep going. They were supposed to leave as soon as they ran into people in Dubai and go back and radio for, you know, an evacuation, but they keep going. And the, you know, ultimately the choice is if you're doing something that makes you uncomfortable and you don't feel like you're getting anything out of it, except, negative feelings you can stop you can always stop just stop um which is not something that we like to think about when we paid money for something no i mean Uh, that's always a tricky thing that's always and especially with games like it's i mean it is changing kind of um perhaps with a little bit of a struggle in places but reason for that um i'm going to take i'm going to take a brief aside whilst um to do some relatively quickfire questions is that is that okay of course okay so well if you um if you had to choose right you're playing a game with death for your own mortal soul so if you had to choose a game you are best at what would that be oh gosh i mean i'm not good at any games um tic-tac-toe i get to go first that is uh uh, I mean, it, it's functional. Like it's it's, it's not mean, an inspiring answer, but it, you know, that, I suppose that's fair. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, I really, when I my really immortal hate soul is on the line, I'm very practical. Okay, um, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I I would say probably. I mean, let, let's go for a more uh, answer of something that you're actually asking for. Probably something like Guitar Hero. Like what? Sorry. Like Guitar Hero. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Uh, yeah. 
I think that that'd be sort of uh, suitably cinematic as well. Yeah, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna if, if you're gonna you know lose your soul, you might as well rock out Absolutely. while you're doing it. Uh, it's, it's somewhat and, appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and that and my and like I am I I, I am a musician, so I, I am rhythm based. I really enjoyed those games when they came out, and oh, I really amazing. got into them. So uh, like, but like a fighting game or or like a or a sports game, like those were never. I didn't grow up playing multiplayer, so like I didn't have a lot of. I've never really had much experience with those, which is, I think, why I instantly was like, tic-tac-toe, because I played that all the time as a kid. Uh, but, like, Guitar Hero, like, that just, that latches into what I want out of a multiplayer experience, where it's more about your performance versus, like, simply fighting someone who's trying yeah, yeah, to yeah. beat you. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you've kind of already answered this next question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Um, are you... A particularly competitive gamer have you ever been locked in a high score battle with anybody never never uh i i'm competitive with uh myself uh and just uh, with life life is a competition that's all the competition i need when i sit down <laughs> to play a game i just i want i want uh escapism and uh I, I won't say fun necessarily because i do like games that uh challenge you uh, mentally yeah. and emotionally but definitely not competitive gamer no um if if you are prone to such things um which i'm not sure if you are or not actually um what would have been your worst rage quit oh god probably um growing up playing mario like the first time i played super mario brothers uh you got to the the end of the first castle I genuinely thought I'd beat the game. It'd take, it'd take me all day to get there. Uh, and you walk into the room, and I'm like, why is the princess wearing a diaper? Uh, and it's like, sorry, Mario. Princess is another castle. I lost it. I was like, this is such a betrayal of everything that I thought this game was telling. How dare they I thought you, I, 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 I really uh, hope you articulated it in that exact way. As well, just oh, yes. as an eight-year-old, I <laughs> yeah. was very, very <laughs> verbose. Um, I, I was so, I was so angry. Um, but that would pro that, that would probably be my my biggest real rage quit would have been that. Uh, and that was the first ultimate betrayal of a video game towards me too. So it kind of <laughs> defined my entire uh, uh, relationship with games from that point on. Um, it has there ever been a, a game that has kind of consumed your life to the point where you're like, I need to uninstall this. I need to get rid of this. This is taking over. Oh gosh. Uh, dark souls was, uh, that one got me. Uh, I was luckily I was working from home. So it'd be like, okay, I will write for five hours today and then I will gain two levels in dark souls. And if I write for 10 hours tomorrow, then on Thursday I can just play dark souls all day. Um, and luckily I think that probably took me about eighty hours, uh, but the Arkham, the the Arkham games, the Batman games, I have. I'm not the kind of person who goes for trophies. I'm not the kind of person who 100%s a game, but I have 100%ed every Arkham game uh, compulsively. I cannot stop. Uh, they are when, really when they good. Though. They Those, are the little, so, little so puzzles. Good. Are just the they are, thing. and it's and honestly, by the end, like by the end of Arkham Knight. As I'm like wrapping up the last few riddle puzzles, I'm just like, man, I am just enabling this guy. That all this is is he's keeps doing this because I keep solving them all. <laughs> I like if I was really the world's greatest detective, I would have figured this out five puzzles into Arkham Asylum and been like, 
Uh, you, you got me. I'm stumped. You win. Problem <laughs> solved. I just saved Gotham because I let the Riddler win one. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah, a, those that are is, that uh, yeah. is a very valid point. That's never crossed me. <laughs> you are. You are totally an enabler. You really are. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, has a. Uh, is there a game that's kind of your your kind of chicken soup or your warm blanket a game that you'll return to for kind of comfort in any fashion at this point probably not i don't i don't replay games too many too much anymore uh, i've returned back to final fantasy 6 uh, a few times and it's still very comfortable but i mean when i do go back and play old games i'm always amazed how much i forget about they really gate you a lot. They force you to do things in order to progress that modern games don't do. Like entering a town. Well, now you have to talk to every single person in the town or the next thing won't trigger. Well, what are those people going to tell me? Nothing of importance. You just have to do it. <laughs> and the game's not going to tell you that you have to do it. And like, so it, I go back and I'll play these games like, man, now I remember why every game needed a strategy guide. <laughs> this is very bad design this is not intuitive <laughs> at all so that i'd say maybe final fantasy VI, final fantasy 6 is probably the closest but uh i imagine i probably will only play that one more time before i die uh would be my guess um and hopefully that's not going to be anytime soon hopefully i'll be like 80 and like let's go back but um <laughs> That's that's probably the closest because I will always have very very fond feelings. But here's the thing, and I and I know we're doing quick fire, but I want to hit on this. And this fine. is the thing about games. Games, uh, a huge thing about games is nostalgia, and it's about these experiences that you, as much as they are fake, uh, they are they are real and visceral in a way that like watching a film is not because you are going through the actions even if you're controlling a digital avatar, and so they create simulated memories out of real memories and so going back and replaying them there is a sense that you're going to be able to relive these moments from earlier in your life in a lot of ways there's there's an almost a time travel aspect of it i mean imagine if you could go back to your first kiss or something in real life that's what you can do when you go back and you play a video game you're going back to that moment and there is diminishing returns at least for me in that, that the the older I get, or the more I go back to it, the less I'm getting to feel those sensations that I felt when I was younger. And so I've kind of reached a point where I, I don't want to lose the memory of this uh, sensation, so I don't revisit anymore. Because when I go back and I don't feel anything, then I'm left with it. Well, am I am I just broken now as a person? Has age destroyed me? Do I can I am I incapable of feeling joy anymore? What's going on? Rather than like question the simple fact that you've gotten older and your experiences have changed, and so you're not going yeah. to. Interact I mean, I'm sure if you actually could go back in actual real life and re-experience moments, which maybe we're only twenty years away from with the way sort of VR and stuff and and memory chips and God knows what, I'm sure the exact same will be true. There's only so yeah. many times you can do your first kiss, and your first kiss more than likely was terrible. Um, oh, of course it was terrible. But though that's the thing is like even when it was bad. It was. Mean. It wasn't. It wasn't the actual act. It was the. It was the rush. It was the adrenaline. It was the excitement. It was the terror and the fear. All these emotions mingling together. And that's the same thing with you're playing a video game for the first time. You're getting the adrenaline and the fear and the uncertainty and all of this chemical uh, cocktail that's coming together in you. And when you go back and revisit it with the knowledge of what it is, 
you've lost that essential ingredient, which is discovery. And that's why, and so that's why I said earlier, like the games that I'm drawn to now are games that really show me something new because that for me, I've pinpointed that that's what was causing those reactions in me as a kid. And so now instead of going back and playing the same things to try and get that, I I seek out games that are going to give me the same thing that those games as a kid used to give me. And so I can get that same emotional reaction now as an adult, but I have to discover new things. Um, that's that's a, amazingly that that, that 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 that's kind of something that I hadn't occurred, but it's just like sort of locked into place in my brain. Like, oh no, that's correct. Yeah, <laughs> that that's a thing that I've been thinking about and haven't been able to articulate. But you know, totally because you well, we do. Don't, you, we you're, don't, you're always yeah. games are so iterative. You're always chasing yeah. kind of the same highs in some way you know you, 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 absolutely you're, you're reforming memories with like a, a slightly nicer coat of paint um yeah oh that's amazing um well speaking of kind of the, the breadth of emotions that video games are able to provoke uh, one of the rarest is is laughter so what what games yes. have really made you laugh oh gosh uh a good Every question. time I ask this question, uh, I get the exact same response to well, begin with because it is so well, here's, so real. Yeah, here's the thing: we're not good at it. Uh, where when it comes to narrative in games, we are still we're we're little we're high school kids discovering goth poetry. That's who we are a lot of times in the type <laughs> of stories we tell in video games. We're trying to be. We want to affect our audience emotionally. And the easiest way to do that is to make you sad or to make you scared. And we're really good at those because our games are empty due to uh, technical limitations. You're often the only thing in a world that is not trying to kill you. And then we're trying to kill things because it is the easiest way to dramatize conflict. There's a thing in front of you. Put your cursor on it, hit a button, that thing goes away. How do I do that? Well, it turns out a gun does that. Hey, there you go. Now we got shooters. And those two things do not feed into happiness, joy, laughter. They feed into the negative emotions. And so those are the easiest to cause uh, and to stir in a player. And the next big jump narratively in video games is going to be when we figure out how to make a game that has you walk away being hopeful, feeling like you can accomplish anything, that the world is a good place, that you are happy with yourself and what you have just played through. That's the next narrative jump. I think the closest... I, just to bring that, just to sort of count, not counter that point, but as you were saying that, I was sort of, my, my brain is obviously cycling through video games and my head going, when have I felt that? And uh, guitar, no, uh, yeah, Guitaru Man. Like Guitar yeah. Man is a wonderful, joyful, happy story, and I always come away from that feeling like everything is going to be fine. Yeah, it's so rare. But yeah, we're it's not super rare. good at it. Um, but I would say, I feel like I, I played Night in the Woods uh, earlier in the year, and that I'm sure I laughed in there. It's a it's it's a, it's a game that is is uh, very emotional and can be and, and definitely confronts things that are more darker and personal uh, than most games. But it also it has humor in it that uh, is very real. And I and I 
it really resonated with me a lot. Um, and let's see, there aren't, I, there aren't too many. No. Humor is, oh, Portal 2. What am I talking about? Portal 2 is the absolute best example of humor in a video game yep. that has ever been accomplished. It has the only joke that I've ever seen in a video game that works because of timing, and timing is like 90% of comedy, and it is the, 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 the one, two, three punch of this is where she kills you, this is where I kill you, and then boom, the achievement pops up, this is where it kills you. And it's just like boom, boom, boom. It's this perfect joke of hitting you three times in a row with it and using the actual format of achievements and how modern games interact with players to get that third punch in was so God, so like that is <laughs> for me as a writer, I look at that joke and I'm just like, man, if I can ever write something in a video game that is that perfect, I will be done. I don't need I will not need to write anything else than that because it was so perfectly accomplished. It's, it's um, weird actually that that like in the kind of many many conversations I've had with various people and talking about this exact thing, like Portal Two is obviously a game that's come up a few times, but just recently actually it, it started to that, that that notion of the achievements being being the joke is really potent because entirely because of the timing of it, like, yeah. that way that it can your brain will just be like one second ahead of it and you'll have this thought and then it'll pop up and like that that loop is so oh it's so good um it really and it doesn't like because i've been playing on the i've had a playstation 4 that's my the console is the only one i've got like it's not as good the 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 kind of playstation (laughs) achievement doesn't have the same kind of pop the noise isn't quite as comedic as the the xbox 360 one there's something about it it's just it's the perfect little noise uh, and the timing of it is just dead on. It's so good. Man, now I'm just going to be thinking about that all day. Uh, <laughs> um, well, let's, uh, like, uh, I, I don't want to keep it too long. So I guess, like, talk about what you've been doing recently then. So, so how is, I, we should sort of talk about how, like, whether writing for games, like how 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 it kind of compared to what you perhaps imagined it to be. Um, and then I guess how I, you ended up on yeah. Star Wars. I had no expectations uh, coming into video games about what writing games would be like. Once I got in, I was like, well, this should really just be like writing a film where I write something and you all just shut up and do it. And that's what every writer coming into video games originally thinks. And we are all wrong. That's not the way it should be. Yes, would things be easier for us as the writer? Absolutely, 100%. Would the game make more sense? Oh, definitely. That's still not the way it should be. Um, so what I'd say my biggest misconception of how writing a game is, is that the story is not the number one thing. Story is not king in video games and not just because we're player focused, but just because there's so many different pieces coming together. You don't even think about design constraints and art constraints and game constraints or being able to do things with cinematics. Like, uh, I remember... I was having dinner with Greg Cassavan one time uh, over at Super Giant Games, and we were talking about just the difficulty of writing. And I think he said someone asked him in an interview. So with uh, you know all of the um, 
technology, you know, leaps in technology in the past few years. How much easier is it for you to write video games? And he was like, are you kidding me? This makes video <laughs> games so much harder to write for. You have no idea. And he's absolutely right. It's like back in the old days, oh, I want to change the story. Cool. Change the text file. Done. Yeah. And it's like now it's like, oh, what do you mean we already filmed that cutscene, and we can't redo it? Yeah, man. Sorry. That's that scene's in there. It's done. But the rest of the story changed. I don't know what to tell you, man. Oh, we're going <laughs> to have to that write that story area. around that scene. Yeah, they, they, like they're not going into the desert anymore. <laughs> There's not a time yeah, to we, make we, those assets. You remember how Mission Six was like the linchpin of your story? We cut that. So, <laughs> can you like put that stuff in other missions? Oh no, you, no, no. Those were already full with it. Okay, yeah. Like it's it makes it much much harder, but. Um, but also it makes it kind of like a puzzle. Like, you know, there have been times where I've taken mostly finished cutscenes, and that had uh, spatial animation done. It's like, well, the story has changed drastically enough that we need new lines, but we can't do new cutscenes. So let's see. The old line is exactly three and a half seconds long. Okay. I need to write a line that's exactly three and a half seconds long that says something completely different and kind of matches up with what these lips are doing. Let's go. That's uh, a fun puzzle. And it it it's fun actually. I mean, there I, when you when you you're hit with that initial uh, thing, you're like, this is the worst thing in the world. I hate <laughs> this. But then once you get over like the fact that something has changed and you have to do it, it's like, okay, cool. This is a challenge. I can do this. And that's the thing about game writing that I'd never thought about going into it that I love the most is that writing a video game is a fight from start to finish and it is a massive set of challenges that you have to overcome with nothing but words and probably the least amount of resources of any other department. Uh, you aren't necessarily going to be able to get art that you need. You aren't necessarily going to be able to get VO or animation or a gameplay beat. You've just got words and you have to make it work and you have to make it work. Only you get going. Also, we need it has to be done in like a week. So now start. And you're just like, wow, okay. <laughs> and I love there's there's a there is a challenge to that that I just I feed off of. It is so exciting because you walk in and you just it's it would be very easy to let it uh, completely overwhelm you, but then you you just have to look at yourself and go. I can do this because I have to do this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> deadlines yeah. are a writer's best friend. And so if you work yeah. in the game, I imagine you, you have, you are littered with deadlines. It's nothing but deadlines. Yeah, it actually, it makes it, it, it's, it's become harder for me to write something, anything else outside of games because the deadline for, uh, that I tend to have when writing games is so tight and so constrained, uh, that, it's like, wow, what do you mean I've got two years to write this other thing? I don't, I guess I'll, for, <laughs> I'll I mean, do I don't it. Know, what do I, in, when should I start? You know, 23 months. I'll make a start yeah. on it. It's like, it's like, gosh, can I just do it in like a month now and get it <laughs> over with and be done? Because like, it just feels like I don't, I'm not used to the, too much time and I doubt myself now. It's like, oh, this should have been, I should have had like 20 people looking over my shoulder telling me how this is all wrong and I need to do it again. What do you mean? I'm, I have total freedom. <laughs> And unlimited time. That's the worst thing you could ever give me. I don't want that. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say that would be the biggest um, misunderstanding of what game writing actually is versus what it turned out to be. And the thing is, I love what it turned out to be. 
at the same time, when I do get to go off and write something entirely for myself, the freedom of not having to work in things like player choice or gameplay, you're just like, oh, man, there's no one I have to fight with. <laughs> I can just let this story be what I want the story. Oh, you mean I can actually have five pages of people just sitting down and talking and nothing's happening? Great. Oh, <laughs> that's so wonderful. It's really interesting uh, the, the way you, you described it earlier about how, you know, either you start your own company and you just, you are involved from the get-go in every department in writing the story, or you just have, like, a kind of framework of something and you write the story around that. Like, I, I wonder... Like actually, this for anyone listening, this would be an interesting game jam for someone to run, to have someone write a game, like very bare bones. Have someone make what they think fits to that story, and then have someone else come in and write it again based on what they've made. That'd be fun, and see how I've they actually, match together. I've, I've always wanted to do that. Is kind of do write a, a do it yourself game script that is kind of vague on what gameplay is, and just publish that and be like. Have at it. Whatever type of game you oh, think yeah, is totally. going to town. So you could, ha- you could have um, the Walt Williams game jam and just see yeah, how many different exactly. people make that. That'd be great. Well, speak, speaking to that then, and, and kind of the way you said your, your relationship with games have changed over the years, like kind of similar to what I asked earlier, like over the last 10 years or so, I suppose, like have, have there been any games that have really been significant to you in some fashion, like in either in terms of what, how they've inspired you or how they've, like these new experiences that we're always chasing? Red Dead Redemption is one of the best games ever made. Um, the way that it, it it what it does that I love more than any other current or last gen game is that it gives you your character has this goal that you're going for this normal family life, and when they achieve it, they give it to you, and the game keeps going. And I loved that so much and then and you know spoiler then they take it away um but after a considerable period of time yeah like they they and you know and if you're smart you know you can figure out that it's coming but they let you have what you worked for and even though it goes against a lot of uh, the core mechanics of what that experience is about, which is being an outlaw. And I love that because that's, for me, that's really, in any kind of story, but particularly in video game stories, like what would be really interesting for me is the story that happens immediately after the credits roll at the end. Because now the conflict of getting what your character wanted is over and they have it that's where the real life conflict begins is you don't, the only enemy you have is yourself and uh, just normal life. Like that's where the real struggle happens is can you have this thing and be happy? I'm I'm really surprised actually that, that this hasn't come up on the show before. Like, cause it really is such an amazing game. Like I I don't know why it it kind of, I I guess it depends on, on, on who you speak to, but like, Maybe because there's so much great stuff being produced, like you forget certain things. But that that ending to Red Dead was something else, and the kind of generational thing they do is like, oh, couldn't like I, it, it very much is one of those feelings where you're like, oh my god, like this is this brand new, and you get such a rush from it because you you just weren't expecting it, you know? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and let's see what there was. I don't remember the exact question. <laughs> I re- I get so caught up in the emotions of thinking about that game. What was the exact question it, it just, I was answering that made me bring it up? <laughs> just games that have kind of had an impact on you in the past sort of like 10 years or so, like since you've been uh, working. And stuff. Oh, yeah. So The Last of Us had a huge Im- – the ending of The Last of Us had a huge impact. So he actually – and here's another point of that. I like endings. I like finite endings or to a game i don't want something vague don't leave it up for me to interpret don't do that that's bullshit you're copping out you're being weak yeah you spent however many hours putting this thing together have the courage of your convictions to end your story in the way that it should be don't leave it open so that everyone feels kind of comfortable because in the end everyone just feels unsatisfied <laughs> this is this is great um, well this feeds back into the intro to the show <laughs> it's a nice circular structure so keep going it is. I, I feel very strongly about endings uh, i love i love endings because the thing is when you were young playing video games uh you know the ending was this magical thing and you never knew what it was going what it was going to be and in certain role-playing games the ending was this extended affair where you finally you've overcome this last huge obstacle and you get to sit back and you're rewarded with finality and closure and this extended narrative scene and it's like yes love it great so i've always been big about endings and so the last of us the ending of the last of us really got me for the reason that i i'm just talking to other friends and hearing other people talk about that that they don't like it is that they felt very betrayed in uh spoiler um you the 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 girl that you've been uh, taking care of you find out the the surgery that they're going to undergo put her through to hopefully come up with a cure for the uh fungal zombies uh it's going to kill her and uh you they're just expecting you to walk away but like she's become your surrogate daughter and your character's just like no i'm not gonna let that happen and you go through this building of people and you just kill them all you just murder them all the best and yeah, video the, game ending ever it's yeah and, and you pick her body up off the the counter and and you carry her out and the woman who's been your connection with these people uh the fireflies is stop, stops you in the in the parking garage and just begging you to stop and you just kill her and because and, and when you do what you tell her if i don't kill you you're just going to come after her and then you just drive away and the girl wakes up, and she's like, what happens? And your character lies to her. And she, he continues to lie to her until the final moment where she just looks you in the eyes and says, tell me what actually happened. Is what you told me, is that the truth? And he looks her dead in the eyes, and he says, yes. And she just looks at him for a moment and says, okay, cut to black. And everything about that, for me, one, it's screen- the reason that I think people didn't like it is because it felt like, to them... This is not what I would do. I would never have done that. Of course. And so from from a narrative standpoint, I loved that because it was saying to the player, this was never about you. This isn't your story. This is their story. Just because you're controlling them does not mean they are you. This is their story, and they are their own people. And I, as a writer of video games, love that. Anytime that a video game says, just because you're playing it, I don't care. This is This story is going to have its own twists and turns, and you can deal with it big fan but second for me when it got to that point of the care of joel deciding that he is going to kill these people that he is essentially going to damn the world because he cannot envision personally living in a world without her 
without Ellie. I got it. Like, I, like, for that, that said something to me about myself in that I was like, you know what? He's being extremely selfish, and I, and I understand why. And I can't say that in that situation I would do any different. I, like, it's terrible and it's horrible and it says stuff about me, but I, I own up to that. And I like that it made me own up to that. Yeah. And that I am, you know, in that way, I probably would be that selfish. Uh, and, and so that a game made me look at myself in that way and, and say, I totally understand the emotional motivation behind what's happening right now. Okay. Yeah, it's so I get, good. I get it, that. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Like, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure <clears throat> I've even made that that sort of same point on the, the show before about how the, the, the reason I, I love that ending so much is basically it's the game turning to you and saying, no, this isn't, this isn't your story. Um, yeah. And to have the kind of the story of the game, I guess, called out so specifically and then having to play through it like, oh, it was... It was it was it was such a, a an odd and jarring feeling, but like so unlike anything I'd felt before playing a game. It, it was it was incredible. But the thing I wonder is, like, would that have worked if it hadn't been at the end? You know, like if they had made that choice at the beginning, and if if you're playing a game, and because you intrinsically, you know, you you become the character. That's part of the allure of the game. You just you put yourself in their place of course and having to kind of deal with that when the character isn't necessarily doing what you would like to do is quite dissonant for an ending it's amazing but i don't know if you could do a do you think you could do a whole game like that no no oh no 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 but you shouldn't i mean i mean take any kind of like story whether it's a film or a book or a comic or a game like you can't sustain something like that for the entirety of a narrative and and because it, it's it comes in the whole concept of like too much of a good thing yeah. is not a good thing uh you now you're just you there has to be balance there has to be contrast and there has to be uh time for the player to connect emotionally with uh what's going on in order for them to have the the fully resonant uh situation uh, experience uh with that scene uh, that you want them to have, uh, and and actually, honestly, I think there's there's one key moment in the entire scene that actually makes it work, and without it, it it wouldn't work. It's when you get to the operating room where Ellie is on the table, and one of the doctors says stop, and he holds up a scalpel towards you. He doesn't attack you; he just holds up a scalpel. Everyone up to that point is an enemy that has tried to kill you, and. Um, if you do not kill them, you will die and not be able to complete it. It's just a, it's a game obstacle. Even with the context, it's still just a game obstacle. But this one doctor threatens you with a weapon that, in, in all honesty, is no threat to you at all. You have a gun. <laughs> uh, and I shot him when I played it. Instinct, because in that moment, when he held up the, the scalpel, I thought... He could attack her. He could attack me. Like when I'm yeah. get picking her up, he could be a threat. And I shot him. And in that, and after immediately shooting him, I thought I probably didn't need to do that. And and there was and that was the only moment of question and guilt that I had in the entire sequence. In that, 
maybe that was too far. Maybe that's something I didn't need to do. He was just scared. He was doing what he could. I like this is not a person that had actually tried to kill me and was not an obstacle. And without that person, and I don't know what happens if you don't shoot him. Maybe maybe he does attack you. I don't know. I'm pretty um, sure I, I shot him too. But I think by that yeah. point I was just I kind of I love the audacity of it, and I was like, right, I'm just yeah. gonna I'm all, I'm all in on this. Yeah, uh, I mean, being that with, guy. Yeah, without that, it it becomes just a video game level, a normal video game level with some deeper emotional context. But that character is what allows you to fully step into Joel's shoes in that moment and ask yourself how you would be feeling and what you what you would be doing and how you would be viewing the people standing in front of you. And it ultimately boils down to questioning, is this person a threat to her? Well, and, yeah. I think all oh. this, uh, as much as a, a downbeat ending that is, maybe that's appropriate <laughs> with all this talk of endings. Um, but while, like, if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to, to mention, like, please take this opportunity now and remind people about your, your book and all that stuff. Well, I mean, uh, like, you know, I've got Star Wars Battlefront 2 is coming out September 19th. Is that all done? Uh, no, yeah? I'm sorry. Not September 19th. November something. It's coming out in November. I am terrible at dates. Uh, and it's got a single player, the single player campaign, uh, which uh, was written by myself and Mitch Dyer and follows Inferno Squad, uh, the, this, the special forces group of the Empire. Do you uh, founded- napalm people on Naboo? I uh, am not saying anything that you do. That was a terrible other joke. Than, I'm sorry other than <laughs> other than playing Aiden Verzio, uh, the commander of Inferno Squad, uh, played by the absolutely amazing Janina Gavanker, who has been a wonderful actress to work with, and it's 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 a really special story. I'll say because I, I can't I can't obviously can't give away much or say too much about it, but it's something that we've all become extremely proud of. And um, I that think people are going to... to get to play in the Star Wars world. Oh, man. It's not even... So here's the funny thing, if, you'll, if you don't mind a few no, more no, minutes. No, is I got, so I got the call uh, from uh, uh, Mark Thompson uh, and J.F. Perot up in uh, Motive, EA Motive. And they were like, hey, man, um, would you be interested in writing Star Wars? Uh, and I'm like, uh, Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we were talking about the details uh, of when they uh, would possibly want me to start and everything. And it was basically they wanted me to start like a week or two before when my baby was going to be born. And when you if you if you have a kid, you know that a week or two before your baby is supposed to be born could actually be the week your baby is born. Yeah. Uh, and I would be in Canada. Uh, far away from my very pregnant wife uh, and possible child. And it was like, I think I have to turn this down. I think I have to say no. Um, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but I think I have to say no. And that afternoon, we went to get uh, an ultrasound. And we were sitting in the lobby uh, waiting uh, to be called in. And I was looking at Twitter on my phone. And that's when John Boyega tweeted out, hey, where's my uh, single-player campaign in Battlefront? What's up with this? And, and I showed it to my <laughs> wife, and she's like, I think you have to say yes, because Finn wants you to write him a Star Wars game. <laughs> and I was like, I think you're right. Um, and we, um, you know, and I, and I talked with uh, Motive, and we were able to work out a schedule that actually uh, did not 
uh, risk me being away from uh, my child's birth. Um, and uh, we're able to work around that. And um, oh, that must have felt have, special to have them kind of, you know, this massive franchise. Oh, we'll, we'll work around that. That's fine. Well, it, we, were, we were very lucky in that uh, it was still like th- maybe about three months out uh, from when the baby was due. And so they were like, instead of starting, you know, right in, you know, right when your baby's due, what if you came in like a month and a half early? for for uh, a week or two yeah and then you just worked off-site for like a month and a half two months and then came back up uh after um, like a month or so after that for a little bit and i was like yeah that actually should be perfect um because the other thing i was doing is once a month after the baby was born i had to move my family from california to louisiana uh so that was also a thing it's like i'm gonna be driving like across the country with a baby guys so um <laughs> at a you know it's a lot they, of good thinking were, time though yeah it, it it really did help actually uh being able to uh kind of plan and plot things out and the day the day before uh, my wife went into labor we i was on an eight-hour conference call with mark and my co-writer mitch uh trying to nail down our story before my wife went into labor uh it's like okay we just need the outline done it's the ultimate tomorrow, deadline there will definitely be a baby um and so that was fun but it was I was I was very 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 lucky to get the call and mo- working with Motive they, they're a fantastic studio and working with Lucas has been they've been amazing collaborators I cannot stress that enough you you go into into a project like this with a stu- with a company like that where you don't know what it's going to be like because it's Lucasfilm and it is Star Wars you like is this going to be like a fight all the way and it's not like that at all they have been such tremendous collaborators uh have been open to uh ideas and all these different things that we wanted to do and and look sometimes they're like you can't do that and we can't tell you and we can't tell you why but it's a good idea come back with something that's not that and you're like hey that's cool i get it you're balancing you're balancing stories across so many projects oh that's interesting yeah Yeah. exactly and you can't tell me everything that's going on it's like you know, like, yeah, I could have totally just suggested a plot point that is integral to episode eight. I don't know that. You're not going to tell me. I just can't do that. That's fine. Cool. But most of the time, they're like, you know, if, they, if, if they're having to say no to something, they're very uh, uh, giving of like, well, okay, so this is why that can't work. This actually was done in a thing a long time ago. You probably don't know. It's okay. Um, but maybe if you did something like this or tweeted it like this way, then it would totally work. And you're like, oh, that's great. Like, it's... You know, it, it's not working with a company that's just shutting you down, yeah. saying no, be better, be better. They like, must they have really like two or three people just working on law. Well, just like they to, have to know this, the the story team, uh, and I believe there's twelve, ten to fourteen of them, uh, and, and we've got to work with uh, so many wonderful people on the story team to where I actually it would be impossible for me to name them all out right now. Um, but uh, uh, Steve Blanca, Ryan Kellogg, Matt Martin. Uh, Pablo Hidalgo, all these uh, people have been so, so great. Leland Shea, um, they're just constantly helping you and working with you because they, they love Star Wars as much as you do. And, uh, you know, their job, that is their job, both to like manage the lore, but also to give you the tools you need to succeed to create an authentic Star Wars story. And I mean, that must it be quite is so great. I can't imagine the amount of Star Wars stories they've been in comics and books and alternate universe and all kinds of stuff so you must have been running well, into roadblocks all the way actually not because as soon as i got 
as soon as they started talking to me about possibly working on it, I just bought it all. I was just like, I'm gonna, I'm going to immerse myself in everything that is currently canon, uh, so that I know what is there, and I, and I just will steer away from those things and also find other things that I can do because I, I, I wanted, and I've. That's been the most reward. I've consumed more Star Wars in the past year than I have my entire life combined. It's ridiculous the amount of Star Wars I've consumed. Um, but it has it, it also given me this wonderful sense that I'm not just writing a story. I am creating something in this galaxy. And as I'm reading all these other stories that are happening, like it gives my story and my characters a sense of actual place existence within these events that feels real to me and makes it feel much more than just writing a script for something it feels real because that's the the most amazing thing about star wars getting to write star wars and i've never experienced this writing anything else is that you realize star wars is a tapestry that you know was started by george lucas and so many people all those years ago and people have been coming in and continuing to sow it and grow it and build off of what's come before. And for a little time, you get to come in with your needle and you get to sew something into this tapestry. And the threads that you leave, other people are picking them up and continuing to sew with them into this beautiful tapestry that honestly will probably outlast and continue to grow well beyond uh, when you and I are gone. Of course. And like, you know, uh, Christy Golden, uh, the amazing author who's written a bunch of great Star Wars books and World of Warcraft books and Assassin's Creed books, she, her book, Inferno Squad, which is the prequel story to the the game that we wrote, comes out this Tuesday on the 25th. And like, that's an amazingly surreal thing, like that we created these characters and the story for them and that already uh, someone of such great caliber has already picked it up and run with it That's and amazing. and expand in that into a broader parts of the universe and it's so cool to see where and like in you the, in the history if you're allowed to say like whereabouts in the history do you do you fit like what is the timeline for this uh we it's it picks up around the end of jedi and it carries over through um the time between episodes six and seven okay that is about as much as i can say okay that's good. That's, um, that's kind of unexplored territory. It really is. Uh, Chuck Wendig, uh, who wrote the the Great Aftermath trilogy of books that came out right before uh, Episode Seven, has covered some of that. But it is there's a lot of it is still very very open, and it's a it's a very very interesting uh, area to get to work in. Uh, it's on. I mean, like I can't stress enough how much of what it's it's probably been the best writing experience of my career getting to work with lucas and work on this story and i think people are really going to i think they're going to find things in the story that they haven't really found in star wars games before um uh, and uh, i can't i'm reveal too much as to what i mean by that but i think it's going to resonate with people in a way they're gonna be like yes this is something i've always kind of really wanted on star wars uh, as a game all the other games have been great i'm not saying that they haven't been great they absolutely have nah. um but there is i mean and there i mean like you take the kotor Most stories and stuff i mean like there are really there have been some really memorable oh yeah, yeah stories that have been told in them um so i'm not saying that that isn't the case uh, just that there is there's a voice and a tone to the story that uh that we're just very very proud with and i think people are going to really really like it other than that 
I do have that book coming out. <laughs> if anything that I have said today has piqued your interest about what it is like to write for AAA video games, to develop AAA video games, or to slowly be driven insane <laughs> by working on AAA video games, then you should absolutely check out my book, Significant Zero. Uh, which comes out September nineteenth. Um, there is going to there is a ebook version. There is hardcover version. There is going to be an audio book version as well. Are you going to read um, the audio book? I am not going to read the audio book, unfortunately. Uh, I am. I read my book out loud to myself and decided that I would save you all from the pain <laughs> of having to hear me do that. And you've got um, a pretty good radio voice, Walt. I'm sure it'd be. Cool. I'm. I have a good talking voice. Reading voice, I was just like, why am, am I, I feel like I'm trying to, is this like a Jack Nicholson impression? What's going on with my voice right now? I don't even know why <laughs> I'm talking like this is, like just all, everything was just like, this sounds weird. Uh, because the thing is, when you're reading a book, you're like, I need to be totally understandable. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, I don't know, I just, I approached it differently than I would just talking about something. And ultimately, uh, the the reader that was suggested, uh, uh, I heard them and they were very very good. And I was like, I could probably do a good job. This guy's going to do a fantastic job. And ultimately, you know, if uh, if you're the type of person who prefers audiobooks to reading a book, I want you to have the best experience that you possibly can with it. And since you know uh, the person who was offered to read it was so good, it's like, please, absolutely, yeah. please go ahead, be my guest, because uh, I think you were going to give the the best reading experience. Uh, so. I was very, very happy uh, in that regard to, to not read it. But if anyone would like me to read it, uh, find me in a bar somewhere and bring a copy that you purchased. I will read out loud <laughs> any section that you want. Um, I will gladly do this for you. Uh, if you bought my book, that's the least I can do. Um, and I will say, if you are at all interested in the book, please consider pre-ordering. Uh, I know in video games... We have a tendency to look down on pre-ordering, but pre-ordering is really, really helpful for authors of any any kind because it tells retailers and publishers and, and, and different people how much interest is in the book and can uh, really change how much that book gets put out there to the public. So um, if, if you're at all interested, please, please consider pre-ordering it. Uh, it would mean the world to me. Does it matter um, where? Is there a specific place people no, should go? No, no. Uh, I mean, I know you can pre-order it on Amazon. That's where I tend to link to on my Twitter, uh, at Walt D. Williams. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I know Barnes & Noble or whatever uh, your main book retailer is in whatever country you happen to be in listening to it's, this. It's uh, Amazon. It's Amazon. It is Amazon. It, okay. <laughs> yeah, of course it is. Yeah, I, fig I figured as much. Um, but it's, yeah, I think Am Amazon's got all the different versions on there for sure. Uh, but, I mean, honestly, you can really, wherever you can... You want to purchase your book? I believe it should be available. Um, and I and I do think it's very different. It's different than any other. It's not an academic book. It's not a book about game theory. It really is a book about what it's like emotionally, physically, and mentally to be in the AAA video game industry. I wanted people to really understand what it's like and why we do what we do, because it is hard in a way that I don't think people fully understand. Yeah. And it's it can be very thankless and but that's okay like it you know it's supposed to be hard and it's supposed to be a little thankless and i'm, I'm still waiting for that you yeah. know the the easy riders raging balls of the the 90s american video game scene you know that the, there is so much so much kind of behind the scenes kind of there's so many rather behind the scenes stories that just have never seen the light of day and it's it's such a 
a rich vein, which I'm tapping to, into a little bit with this show, but I'm, I'm sure there's so much. You know? I, I think you will find a lot of that in Significant Zero. There, that, that is what I really wanted to get across with this book. And I think that you will find a lot of that experience. Lots of cocaine it's not, and parties in the Hollywood Hills. It's it's not that it's gonna, that's the one thing I do understand. It's not it's not a salacious tell all because ultimately I, it's about the work. Uh, why we do what we do. I mean, the thing is, look, people do people do drugs. I mean, yes, people do drugs everywhere. That's the thing. Of course, people, yeah. you, you when you're 15 working at a mall, yeah, you're sneaking behind the back, you know, uh, the dumpster smoking a joint. It's because drugs, drink, partying. That's that's life. That's human life and that happens everywhere it's not about the work it doesn't tell you anything about the work and we like to think oh well, that's the real story no it's not because that's what you'd be doing anywhere yeah. and and ultimately has nothing to do with why you're in this job why you're pursuing this job why you're trying to make the things that you want to make that's that's the real interesting story that's that human part what you do in your free time that's just your free time like you know at least that's the way i see it um it's so it's, I, I've it's, met a lot of very boring drug users in my life. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be is, writing interesting books about them. Oh no, and I I, I uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> I have also met quite a few boring drug users, and also just very boring sober people. You Absolutely. know, like people are boring. What <laughs> people are people are not boring when they're pursuing something that they're passionate about and the things that they will go to to see that through, and that's. That's what Significant Zero is really about. And so, please, consider checking it out. That is also why uh, why this interview has been a delight, Walt. Uh, it's been really good. Uh, was that, was that fun you. for you? Yeah, it would, honestly, man, it was a total pleasure. I love getting to talk in general. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I work from home with a baby. So, yeah, getting exactly. to, to talk to a, a fellow adult about anything is wonderful. <laughs> um, but, it like, getting to go back and revisit a lot of just the stuff like games and childhood and all this stuff it, it's been an absolute joy Declan it really has uh, oh, and thank you so much, much for getting in touch with me for this I've really really enjoyed it it's been a wonderful day step in front of a runaway train just to feel alive again pushing forward through the night aching just it's so far, so far away It's so far, so Trying to press steady 